This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Hallelujah. What a wonderful time we've had this morning. Hallelujah. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for fellowship. We thank you for love. We thank you for the bond that we have together in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Son on our behalf. We were and are so undeserving. And yet, you brought love into this world in the form of your Son. And as John mentioned, a propitiation for our sins. So we praise you this morning. And we thank you for this. And we ask you, Lord, just to bless the remainder of our time together here. Let your name be glorified. Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're looking at the process of growth and how we grow as believers. Um, And we've looked at faith, that it's strengthened in trial. We have looked at time, that, you know, God's got his plan and he takes his time. Uh, We've looked at acceptance, that you're accepted in Christ uh, because of Christ. You're accepted by the Father because of being in Christ Jesus. And that is not something we earn or deserve. It is purely by being through faith in Christ. Uh, We've looked at purpose, that God's purpose is to conform you to the image of Christ. Uh, We've looked at preparation, that God uses trials and difficulties in life to prepare you for that which is to come. So God hasn't stopped where you are now. And you might think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now and it's all over. It's not over. It's just the beginning. And um, because God has got things in store for you still, and he's using all of the time of your life up to this point for what comes ahead and up to tomorrow for what comes after that. We've looked also at being complete in Christ Jesus um, and that fighting to get a victory or get the victory is a misunderstanding of the victory that you have in Christ Jesus presently. And uh, we looked also at appropriation, which tied very strongly into that last week, um, that learning the promises of the and the truths of Scripture that are ours by being in Christ Jesus, uh, this is really an important thing. But more than just having a head knowledge is that we have to take those promises and truths into our lives by faith in God and in his word and trust that he uh, will then achieve the outcomes in our lives that he determines. And um, so we learn to receive them from the Lord. So we want to have a look at um, at something here this morning, and that is identif- identification. ID. There's a lot of ID theft that goes on these days. Um you can get software actually to protect yourself from ID theft. You can even buy insurance um, in an, in the states, insurance against ID theft, and uh, that compensates you if you have ID theft, and also helps you to restore your ID to who you are. And um, uh, but that's not what we're talking about. So we've got a lot of quotes here this morning, and and uh, but we want to begin with 
Romans chapter 6. This Romans chapter 6 is a phenomenal passage for you and I to learn and to understand. And uh, if you if you want to have a uh, you know maybe a, a goal for the year, a great goal for this year would be to memorize Romans chapter 6 and meditate over it. Um, you will find that to be a passage that you can recall all the time in situations of life and, and it will just be such a blessing to you as you work through that passage. So let's continue on here. Um, Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ or immersed into Christ, use that word, that's the the real word, immersed into Christ Jesus, have been immersed into his death. We've been buried is the the word, that we've been buried into Christ Jesus or submerged into Christ Jesus. And by being submerged into Christ Jesus, we have been submerged into his death. So he's not talking about water baptism. That's just a symbol of what God has done by faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is talking about here is that when you trusted Jesus, he has taken your life and buried you in Christ Jesus. Okay, so it's powerful words that he's using and he's he's bringing across to them a powerful mental picture. And that's what we need to grasp. That's why I'm sort of emphasizing those words. So therefore, verse four, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism or through immersion into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And all God's people said, hallelujah. All right. Praise God. Verse five. For if, now the four attaches back to what he was just saying about walking in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. All right, just let it sink in. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, all right, grab a hold of yourself. There it is. You're sitting right here in that body of sin, right? That our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. That's Paul's way of saying a little phrase that I sometimes use, is that people aren't a problem, it's only the living ones that cause you trouble. And Paul is saying that when we're dead, when we understand that in Christ Jesus we're dead to sin, then we can begin to walk in the victory that his resurrection life gives us. Let's move on. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. 
For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how we're to think. So Paul says, think the same way. Think that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Because that's what the life of Jesus was. That he became dead to sin for you and I, but he is alive unto God. Verse 12, For therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. This is where sanctification, this this progression in sanctification over the life of uh, over the term of your Christian life until you go to glory. This is where you and I couple in with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that we cooperate with Him once we're saved. We cooperate with Him, and God progressively sanctifies us in the way in which we live in this life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now that would take us in a, uh, a very long direction about understanding the purpose of the law and uh, uh, that, that the law actually has a work in it to show us our sin so that we can see the need of the Saviour. And Paul says you can now have victory over that sin that was revealed to you before under the law. You can now have victory over that sin because of the grace of God. And because you're alive in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful passage. I've got this done by paragraphs. That's why it looks a bit different each time. So I'm trying to keep them in the paragraphs. It helps us with the context. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? So if you go back through this passage and you begin to memorize it and you begin to work on it throughout the year... Uh, the rest of the year. Um, when you come to those questions, what shall we say then and what then? Understand that between that and the next um, iteration of that question, the section in between is Paul's explanation or his answer. To the, so he's being rhetorical. He's asking a question he's going to answer. So he's not asking you to pluck something out of the ether or come up with just some uh, personal notion. Paul's giving the answer to that. So what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? This is a, a common refrain from people who who want to press legalism upon you, that they'll say, oh, so you can just sin then because you're under grace. May it never be. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, 
you presented your members as slaves, uh, sorry, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, but just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. There is a cooperation between you and the Lord, that you yield yourselves to cooperating with him in acts of righteousness, and this results in further sanctification in your life. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? Being a slave to sin made you free from righteousness. You know? And um, uh, Suzanne and I sometimes, with our children, we, we were maybe a little different than, than some parents. Uh, when our children, before they were saved, and um, they were, you know, moving out from under our headship in rebellion and in sinfulness... Uh, we didn't try to get them to live outwardly like Christians, you know. In fact, we confronted them at various points in their lives and we said, listen, you don't have to come to church if you're not a Christian. Don't come to church because you think it looks good for us, you know, because you need to come to church because you love God. You need to be with other believers because you love God. And every single one of them left. And... uh Three of them have come to Christ and one's getting close and but they've come to Christ through the gospel and not they haven't they haven't they've therefore been able to come to Christ by an understanding of the gospel and not through being raised as church kids which is often so confusing for church kids so we kind of brought them into confrontation with their sin because Paul says when you are a slave of sin, you are free from righteousness. And so we tried to set them free from that righteousness and, and let sin take its course. And it's a painful thing to watch. Yeah. But I'd rather them come to the realisation of their sinfulness and come to faith in Jesus than to live as outwardly righteous people and not know Jesus. Yeah. Therefore, what benefit were you... Um, uh, then, uh, sorry, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. So the process of the Christian life involves believers progressing from truths about the new birth. When you were a sinner, before you came to know Jesus, you heard the gospel and you heard about being born again and then a little bit uh, further along you maybe came to understand Christ's substitutionary work on the cross for you, you learned about faith and grace and all these kinds of things. These are elementary teachings and uh, that stem and that come along with the new birth. And 
as you grow, you progress on to deeper truths and you progress on to truths that affect the way you live. They affect the way you grow in Christ Jesus. And these are truths about sanctification, for example. Sanctification is a a wonderful doctrine. It is sometimes misappropriated. There's there's two extreme forms. There's one uh, of the uh, teaching that we've been sanctified um, uh, in Christ Jesus upon salvation and therefore it's all done and it doesn't matter how we live from that point in time. We can just live like the devil because we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. But walking in sin is evidence of a lack of conversion. That we would live in sin. That's an evidence of a lack of conversion. And then there is a, 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 another extreme of sinless perfection that we can, in this lifetime, achieve a sinless perfection and be entirely sanctified this side of glory. And so both of those extremes lead to wrong behavior and they're rooted in wrong theology. But this idea that we are entirely sanctified in Christ, yet in this body... God is still continuing to sanctify us this side of eternity. And we talked a lot about that when we went through the series that we did uh, previous to this. There's a, a lots and lots of material on that, that God is working to sanctify you. And that's the idea of Romans 8.29, that we are being transformed into, transformed this, this continuous uh, work of God. He is transforming you all the time into what? the image of Christ. So these kinds of truths, positional righteousness, and that's where people who misunderstand those two extremes of sanctification often don't understand positional righteousness, that right now in Christ Jesus you are free from the power of sin. That's how God sees us, in Christ Jesus. But in this body we will still wrestle with sin. And the more we yield up our members as instruments to unrighteousness, the more that sin will have control in our lives. The more we yield up our instruments, uh, our instruments meaning our body parts, as instruments of righteousness to God, the more righteousness reigns in our lives. And so this is the same with the issue of identification. It's, it is a powerful theological Understanding The believer's battle with sin is not in regard to guilt. Because true guilt, remember we talked about that in that previous series on, on true spirituality. True guilt has been dealt with at the cross. It has been dealt with there. That's been done. Christ has justified all who truly believe. Justified. And simply translated, just as if I'd never sinned. Amen. So you do listen. But our battle now is with sin's ruling power in our lives. That's our battle now. And, you know, think about it through the week. Like, how many times was there a... A, a temptation, and maybe you overcame that at, at the time and you were rejoicing, but that battle was there. Or maybe you yielded and, and you were convicted and, and, and there was repentance, but that battle was there. Because in this mortal temple, at this stage, you are going to battle with sin's power in your life. This, 
it's a really difficult concept for us to understand, but it is presented very simply in Genesis chapter 4. Now, this verse is actually a reiteration of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, just that the pronouns are changed. In Genesis chapter 3, God said to Eve, your desire will be to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And here he says the same thing to Cain, except the nouns and the pronouns have been changed. In there, he says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now, here's the same phrase as in Genesis chapter 3. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the phrase in the in the Hebrew is the same, except the nouns and the pronouns are changed in there. Instead of it being Eve's desire for Adam and he should rule over her, now he changes this to Cain, sin's got a desire for you and you should rule over it. Now, if we took, the, this is a little bit of an aside because the feminists, Christian feminists, have taken Genesis chapter 3 and and they try and use that as some endorsement for uh, female leadership in the church, um, which is an unbiblical position. Um, and they try to use that as a foundation for that argument, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, saying there, you know, look, God changed things and, and um, that there's this positional equality. There is a positional equality in Christ, you know? Neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, all have free access to salvation through Christ Jesus. But in the working of family in the working of society, in the working of the church, there are differences of function that appear sometimes in this vertical manner. And there is authority given and leadership that is given by God to men. And and so that is a that is what God has done. And so when when the Lord speaks to Cain and he, he says to him Sin has a desire for you. Is that good or bad? Bad. You should master it. Is that good or bad? That would be a good thing to do. So when God states the same phrase to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, Well, is this going to be a good or a bad desire? It's a bad desire. It's a desire to rule over. He should rule over you. Now this rulership in the case of Adam and Eve... Adam was to rule with a loving hand over his wife. This is not a tyrannical relationship. You know, look at what then Paul will later expound in Scripture and explain to us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself. So any of this, you know, idea that has come out of the 1940s and 50s American Christianity with these heavy-handed men in their homes and all this kind of stuff, that, that's wrong. It is a servant leadership, but it's a leadership at the same time. And so there is to be that kind of structure within the family and within the church as well. And so, you know, in the church... The leadership is, rather than being a top-down pyramid, we flip the pyramid over and those who lead are at the bottom, lifting up the saints. That's how it's supposed to be. 
that they lift up, they edify the saints through the teaching of Scripture and they strengthen the saints so that the saints then can edify one another. That's the, the pattern of Scripture. Now, all of that is an aside. Just thought I'd mention it because I love that uh, Genesis 4, how it gives light to Genesis chapter 3. And, um, you know, don't, don't fall for these modernist, feminist, modern feminist cliches and, and rubbish uh, that goes on. So, so, Abel is told, sin has a desire for you, you should master it. You should rule over it. And Romans 6, in a sense, takes that idea about sin and, and how it rules and reigns in our bodies, and it gives us truth about being delivered from sin as a master over us. In Romans 6, we see what God has done, and not so much with our sins, the, the question that question is sort of dealt with in the preceding chapters um, in Romans, but with us as being slaves, the agents and the slaves of sin. That's, that's how Paul describes you without Christ. Apart from Christ, you were a slave to sin. Well, that echoes the teaching of Jesus himself, that those who sin are slaves of sin. Because, and it's such a good picture, because that's exactly what uh, what sin does to us. It enslaves us and it controls us. But he has put our old man where he put our sins. Now, where were our sins put? Nailed to the cross with Jesus, right? Nailed to the cross with him. But Paul gives this understanding that you and I have also been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Now, this brings with it um, some scary thoughts, you know, because... I, I don't know about you, but being nailed to a cross is not an appealing thing. Romans 6 verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. How did he die? On the cross. Certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. He's been raised to new life and now lives to the glory of God the Father. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, the King James says, was crucified with him. These are very emphatic statements that Paul is making, aren't they? they there's no wiggle room with this. That this is what has happened. When Christ was crucified, you by faith, when you placed your faith in Christ Jesus. And this is why, you know, this is why the church has to be committed to a true presentation of the gospel. Because the gospel brings with it this requirement that a person weighs up the cost, right? That they have to understand that 
in order to be a follower of Christ Jesus, we are called to forsake sin. We're called to turn from sin. Now, if if we were living in the day of Christ and if our Messiah was hanging on the cross and we were lining up to be interviewed as to whether we want to be believers or not and if the first person at the head of the queue says, yes, glory, I want to be a believer. And so then they say, step over this way and they put that person on a cross. They nailed him to a cross right there in front of everybody. At that point, the queue is going to slow down, isn't it? You know, (laughs) right there and then the queue is going to slow down because all of a sudden people are going to see this realization that there's a cost involved in following Jesus. Now, the difference is that Paul is speaking, obviously, in spiritual terms. And he's not saying that we can somehow pay the price for our sins. But he's saying that that when you and I placed our faith in Jesus, we became hidden in Christ Jesus. And in that, uh, as a spiritual reality, we were placed with Jesus on the cross. Now, if that does your head in, that does my head in. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is free from sin. We often say that very same kind of thing, don't we? we? We had a dear friend who departed this world uh, a few years back and uh, Jeannie, uh, so loved by everyone in the congregation, but there was a, a bit of rejoicing when she went. And it's not because we wanted her to go, but it's because she was free from the pain she was in. You know, free from that. It's gone. And so Paul says the same thing, that when we died, when we're, when we're dead, we're free from that. And this is how, he's saying, this is how you have to see yourself because in Christ Jesus, you've been crucified. Now, it's not just put on a cross and taken down. This is not some Filipino Easter convention, you know, where you get nailed with some roofing nails to a cross, lifted up and put straight down, nails ripped out and everyone pats him on the back and says, whoa, that's awesome, man. Well, good on you. I could never do that. You know, this is not that. Crucified meant to die. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now notice that in the Christian life, we see substitution. Christ died for sinners. So he died in our place. As Romans 5.19 says, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Right? So this is the substitution. Jesus died for us and on our behalf. But Paul then, a few paragraphs later, will talk about identification. He says that the believer has also died with Christ. Christ. 
It's because of this great mystery of us being hidden with Christ, hidden in Christ. Andrew Murray, such a great writer, and he's not the tennis player for those who are very young. We're not, not talking about the tennis player. Although he may have spoken like that too. Like Christ, the believer too has died to sin. He is one with Christ in the likeness of his death. Romans 6 verse 5, we just read that. And as the knowledge that Christ died for sin as our atonement is indispensable to our justification, so the knowledge that Christ and we with him in the likeness of his death are dead to sin is indispensable to our sanctification. This is where we're talking about that progressive sanctification. To understand that that you and I have died to sin. Why is that important? Because dead people don't sin anymore. Dead people don't do anything anymore. But Paul is using that argument to explain to them and you know they would have read this letter out in the church meeting and they probably had a chuckle when when they read that. You know when Paul said for he who is dead is free from sin. They probably said oh duh Paul. But he's talking about the spiritual condition and understanding that in Christ Jesus you were crucified with him. We have to understand that that this is the spiritual position that the Lord sees us in. It's a powerful truth and we can't dispense with it because if we make light of this truth, we will live a life that dishonors God. Sin will rule and reign. Now, Paul commands us to to reckon ourselves dead unto sin um, most Aussies don't need the word reckon explained because we use it all the time, you know. <laughs> I reckon, I reckon that's true. It's a nice day, isn't it? I reckon, you know. So we, we use that word and, uh, we use it a lot, but it, it means to, to, to balance something out, really, that we do the equation and we get the, the facts balanced out and we, it's then been reckoned. So if you, if you were to do that with your, Income and your outgoings, and you should get that zero net uh, there in it. So you should be able to account for everything that comes in and everything that goes out, and uh, and that is the process where whereby you reckon something. If we reckon ourselves thusly that we're dead to sin, then. We can understand, we can understand that Christ really bore our sins, can't we? On, on the cross. He, he truly bore our sins and the guilt of our sins on the cross. We can understand that. And we know we're not going to get to judgment day and meet up with those sins again. They're dealt with in Jesus, right? So God's not bringing them out in front of you and say, hmm, you know, hmm, Colin, you were really bad, man. You know, he's not doing that on judgment day. You know, that's that's not happening. It's being dealt with in Christ Jesus. So, only God's word. How do we know that? Because God's word reveals that to us. It reveals to us that our sins were dealt with in Jesus. Now, that same word tells us that we died with him. Right? So, if the first fact is true, then the second fact is true also. 
So if, if our sins have been dealt with in Jesus Christ at the cross, and then Paul says, now, now we died with him in that cross. Now that fact is also true. So this tells us that our old man was crucified. And by that I don't mean your dad. Your flesh, your sinful self was crucified. It therefore tells us that by being in Christ Jesus through faith, you have shared in his death, in his suffering. And what happened after Jesus died? He was resurrected to live to the glory of God the Father. And so you and I likewise in Christ Jesus have not only been crucified and are dead to sin, but we've been resurrected to new life. This is the important thing for us. Romans 6 verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9.22, According to the law, one might also almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. They were supposed to be separate points. But anyway, it's there. Hallelujah. We'll put it in here. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we know that you and I, because we were sinful, we could not atone for our own sin. And so God sent his son in the likeness of man to atone for our sin. And then Paul says, now when you place faith in Jesus, you also were crucified with him. What happened after Jesus died? He was resurrected, so you also have been raised to a new life. Your old man was crucified and died. Now you're a new man, so now live that way. Right? Live that way. Sometimes we Australians, you know, oh no, I'm not even, I won't go in that direction. It's just, it's going to lead to bad stuff. Maxwell, who who wrote some really good books, he said, Believers in Christ were joined to him at the cross, united to him in death and resurrection. We died with Christ. He died for us and we died with him. This is a great fact true of all believers. It's what Paul says in Romans 6. I love how Maxwell says that. This is a great fact true of all believers. Amen. The distinctive mark of the Christian is the work of the cross and the the experience of the cross. Not not just that Christ died for us, but that we died with him. Romans six verse six, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Paul always writes in this manner. He's he's not just putting down random ideas. He's building thoughts and ideas and that's why you see therefore and for and but and so that, all these kinds of things in there. And when you see that, go back, get the context again, be sure that you understand what the so that is. God doesn't want you and I to be slaves to sin in this body. 
We're still in this body of sin. But spiritually, it's been crucified with him. Spiritually, you are a new person in Christ Jesus. You're just battling between now and eternity. And so now as we, if, if we start to see ourselves crucified with Jesus, I think it's um, Paris Reedhead who has some amazing things to say on that subject about seeing himself crucified with Christ. And, you know, look up Paris Reedhead sermons if you want to get convicted. Uh, that'll really help you. They're really outstanding. If we stop at the great doctrine of justification, which is a phenomenal doctrine, isn't it? It's a, it's a wonderful doctrine. And really, it's, it's a, it is at that foundation of the Christian life. But if we stop at that doctrine, there's a danger that we don't move on into victorious living. Because we can just be, oh, praise the Lord, I'm justified. Just as if I'd never sinned, now I'm going to live like the devil. Because I've been forgiven. In fact, um, F.J. Hugel, who's a theologian, he said if the great Luther, and he's not criticizing Luther, he's just criticizing the emphasis of the one doctrine, He says, with his stirring message of justification by faith, had with Paul moved on from Romans 5 to Romans 6 with its amazing declarations concerning the now justified sinner's position of identification with his crucified Lord, would not a stifled Protestantism be on higher ground today? Might it not be free from its ulcerous fleshliness? And this, this is what ha- happened to Protestantism in, this, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I think Hugel died. Uh, he was a, I think he was an Austrian theologian who moved to America. I think he died in the early 70s. And he could see it then that Protestantism had, had descended into this ulcerous fleshliness, as he called it. It was such a, a great description. And you and I have all known people who proclaim Protestantism and uh, regularly getting drunk and all these kinds of things and and uh, it's all right, I've been justified. And this is a wrong position. It's an insufficient understanding of the work of Christ at the cross. He completed the work. But by faith in Jesus, you were crucified with him, buried and died and raised again to a new life. Now live that new life to the glory of the Father. So there, that's where a cooperation begins with us. The believer's been united with Christ in his death. So, you know, understand, Hugel's not criticizing Luther and the unlocking of the great doctrine of justification. He's praising that. He's saying it's just a pity that Protestantism didn't go on to Romans 6 a little bit more on the identification understanding. So, this union with Christ... In this union with Christ, the body of sin, the entire fallen man, sin ruined, sin ravaged, with all of its, you know, fleshly intellect and all of its desires, has been judged and crucified. Romans 6 verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. 
One man said, the first phase of our spiritual experience may be a great and overflowing joy with a marvelous sense of emancipation. Isn't that true? What a great description that when we first get saved, there's just that experience of joy and that sense of being freed, right? That sense of being freed. And that takes us back to that, that true story in history of the, uh, slaves um, in in America at the time, and and a, a young lady who was on the slave block, um, and a, uh, a a wealthy man. He bought her uh, on that slave bo- block. I mean, the idea of buying human flesh anyway is abhorrent, um, and that slavery was liberated by the work of many Christians uh, through that period. But he liberate he he bought her. From that slave block, he went in then to uh, the the judge and he paid for her emancipation papers. And uh, so she became his property and he instantly freed her. And uh, so she threw, threw herself down at his feet, weeping over his feet and saying that she belonged to him forever and, uh, and stuff. And that's just such a great picture of the gospel. And, you know, this is, this is the, the prostitute that was caught in her sin and being freed by Jesus. And that when we see our sin, then Paul is giving this idea that we've been crucified with Jesus, raised to this new life, now live in that way as a slave to Christ. And in that is freedom from sin. As we yield up our instruments... As instruments of righteousness to God, we're freed from the power of sin. And this is a progression of sanctification throughout our lives. The, the quote goes on and says, in this, in this phase, in this early phase of just being born again, extravagant things are often said as to total deliverance and final victory. And you've probably talked to a new believer before who said, Oh man, you know, it's just like Jesus took all my sin away and I don't battle. I used to battle with pornography before and I haven't looked at any porn since. How long have you been saved? I've been saved a day, you know. And so, you know, they don't know the battle's coming. It's around the corner. They're going to face the battle. And that's why Paul says, yield up your instruments as instruments to righteousness. Because if we give them toward works of righteousness, we cannot give them toward sin at the same time. Right? This is, this is Paul's antithetical teaching. He's teaching the antithesis of that is this. It's a quid pro quo in a sense, to use a phrase we've all come to know in recent times. So, then there may and often does come a phase of which inward conflict is the chief feature. Isn't this true? This is such a great description of the Christian life. We get saved, there's the exhilaration, there's the feeling of total victory. I'm never going to sin again. Why am I having so much conflict is the next stage, you know? that. And then it goes on, it says, it, it may be very much of a Romans 7 experience. This will lead under the Lord's hand to the fuller knowledge of the meaning of identification with Christ, as in Romans 6. Happy the man who has been instructed in this from the beginning. Understand, you're going to have a battle. You are going to have a battle. So therefore, see yourself in Christ Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected as a new person. 
And now yield that new person to the Lord in works of righteousness. We'll close. Jesse Penn Lewis said, If the difference between Christ dying for us and our dying with him has not been recognised, acknowledged and applied, it may safely be affirmed that the self is still the dominating factor in the life. So if we don't see that, if we don't understand about our position in Christ and our identification with him, self is still going to rule. There'll be that initial stage where that person just seems to be walking in a 100% victory. But without coming to that understanding, they're still going to battle with that. So the question, who died on the cross? Well, we instantly always answer, our Lord died on the cross. But who died with him there? And Paul would say that we have. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So there is an issue here where the person who is is battling with sinful behaviour. This is going to raise a lot of different... It raises a lot of different conjecture by people and, and um, you know, the, the shallow level of counselling will, will say to a person who admits to you they're battling with sin, have you been saved? And... Um, this, that becomes a problem because there is a great condemnation in that statement, in that question. And it may be a question that comes out in the counselling of an individual, but it may not be the first question. It is probably the most important question. But it may not be the first question. Because first of all, there is an ascertaining of a person's testimony and hearing about their life and about their conversion, etc., etc., so that we can understand where that person is situated because if we can see that that person has truly come to faith in Christ Jesus, their battle with sin stems from a different root then. It's, it's coming from a different position. And so we need to help them in understanding who they are in Christ Jesus and help them in understanding their position in Christ Jesus and help them in understanding how to live that new life in Christ Jesus. James R. McConkie, and you should look him up. You'll be blessed. Because he died, death has no more dominion over him. And because of our union with him, sin shall not have dominion over you, even though it is present in you. Our reckoning ourselves dead to sin in Jesus Christ does not make it a fact. It is already a fact through our union with him. So you're not trying to make something happen. If you believe, if you've placed faith in Jesus, you've been born again, it is a fact. You're not making it a fact by believing it to be so. It is a fact. You're coming to understand that fact. That's a, that's a different position. 
our reckoning it to be true only makes us begin to realize the fact in experience. This is really a truth for us to grasp in our lives, isn't it? About our identification with Christ Jesus. And I I would genuinely urge you to um, work your way through Romans chapter 6. Just study through, study through Romans chapter 6. Memorize it. There's there's one or two people here who can testify to uh, how that helped them in their lives. Romans chapter 6, just a, such a blessing to them. It's a phenomenal passage. And if you work through it, memorize it, break it down, understand it by the paragraphs, God will really bless you. In it. He will really... I mean, it's a blessing to read and memorize his word anyway, but... Romans 6 is phenomenal. Amen? Bev saying amen. She knows God delivered her through Romans chapter 6. Hallelujah. Many years ago. She only looks 25, but it's a few years ago. So, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, Father, we thank you and we praise you for this morning. Lord, some of these things are hard for us to understand that there is a truth that is now and there is to some degree a life that we live that means that it is not yet and at the same time, positionally, it's true. And we can see in, in this great text that Paul urges us to understand it by faith so that we might apprehend that truth and live by it. And so we ask you, I ask you this morning, help me, help us to apprehend that truth so that each day we live more and more to your glory. Lord, that we can wake up in the morning and say, Lord, glorify your name in me today. And that we can get to the end of the day and we can say, Lord, I pray you have been glorified in me today. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you for this morning. Praise you for Romans 6, Lord. Praise you for all your word. Bring it into our hearts as a revelation and a a light unto us. Your word is light. We praise you and we thank you. Amen. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.